FM Podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to the interview with former first, 101st Battalion Commander Brad Miller. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight is Friday, March 26th in the year 2023. This begins Memorial Day weekend. And to kick that off, I have what I consider to be an amazing interview of an, a battalion commander, what he refers to himself as a former lieutenant colonel battalion commander for the 101st Airborne. And this is Brad Miller. Tonight, you're going to be introduced what true integrity is for an officer who is part of the United States military. This man is amazing. We're going to talk a little bit about that before we get going. One thing I need you to be aware of is if you don't know that these fools that are running this nation are trying to exploit everything they can to bring you to your knees, starve you, and make you eat the bugs. And that's just not acceptable. You need to have in your preparations of things the ability to have food on the shelf that can last for twenty up to 25 years. Long-lasting food that you can grab and go if you need to, that you always know you can count on no matter what befalls us and no matter what attacks us. That's why we have My Patriot Supply. Patriots, you've seen the dire headlines we're facing in the world today. Everywhere you look, things are falling apart. That's why the smartest investment you can make right now is in your family's food security. We've seen supply chains break down, food processing plants burn. We've seen animals cold because of so-called viruses. The reality is you might not be able to find food when the next disaster strikes. Imagine a moment in the future where grocery stores could be empty roads closed, and trucks won't be able to make deliveries. When that happens, you need emergency food in full supply. That's why I urge you to grab a three-month emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest preparedness company. When you order today, you'll save $200 on each kit you need. Having these kits means your family will stay fed while others stand in food lines. Don't delay. Order your three-month emergency food kit today and save $200 per kit. It's easy to order. Go to preparewithbards.com. You'll get fast and free shipping too. Preparewithbards.com. Do this today. You won't regret it. Preparewithbards.com. I'm Patriots. Before we begin tonight, I need to give everybody a bit of context on some things that you may or may not be aware of, but it's important to appreciate what you're going to hear tonight. Former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller was a West Point graduate. Now, to understand that, first of all, West Point is what is supposed to be the hub of all of our future regular Army long-term leadership in this nation. That's where we build the legacy of leadership, typically, is out of West Point. On top of that, he was a battalion commander for 101st Airborne Rockessons. If you aren't familiar with 101st Airborne, go do some history in World War II. Their legacy is unbelievable. And this is the, the Screaming Eagles. They are truly, they are of legend. And so as, a, as an officer, 
to have gone through West Point and then to get a command as a battalion commander at, in, ahead of the 101st Airborne Rockassons. I'm going to tell you right now, that's one of the highest levels of accomplishment, of a career achievement for an, a younger officer. In Lieutenant Colonel, though, he's not, he's not young. He's been in 19 years. But as a officer that's still within, out of the GO, general officer rank, that is a huge thing. Massive accomplishment in a career, and it doesn't come easy. The selection process to get to those places is huge. And so you have to appreciate these things to understand what I'm going to say next. This amazing man, an American patriot, came to the point when they rolled out the clot shot, said he was not going to take it, didn't trust what he was hearing, didn't agree with the mandates. When they tried to relieve him of his command of 101st Airborne Battalion Commander, he resigned his commission. What does that mean? That means he put in his paperwork and said, I'm done with the military. I'm walking out. And he forfeited his retirement. He forfeited all all of his career legacy that he had worked for and left his paperwork behind, said, see ya. And the reason? Because he said he could not serve the military and honor his oath with the clot shot in effect. This is what we're talking about when we talk about American heroes and the type of people that are here. We have a number of them. We have a lieutenant colonel in our own ranks who's now a full board colonel that held the line, was, was able to stay in the military. And he is another hero. We have many of these heroes. But I'm telling you, here's another one. I want you to hear this voice today. This is a great interview, great conversation. Now, on another footnote, I've been in touch with Lance Corporal Catherine Austin. And I, I'm going to make sure I got that right. And um, this is... Uh, the the young lady that was has literally been railroaded in the Marine Corps, okay, and and I'm sorry, Catherine Arnett, my mistake, Lance Corporal Catherine Arnett, and I was just on the phone with her before the show. She's coming on next week. Now let me just give you a snapshot of this person. This is a young Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. They threw her in the brig in Japan. If you probably have read the story, for not taking the clot shot, they're trying to railroad her out of the military and court-martial her. She's putting up her own defense. Now, keep your prayers up because we're trying to not only I'll have her on the show next week, I'm hoping to get her to Bards Fest. This is big stuff. These are people that need to be heard and we're going to need our support as we go forward. These are the true heroes in uniform that have been fighting this tyranny that we're out here. And so we need to stand together both whether you're in service or out of service, whether you're in the military, out of the military, however that comes, there is a core of us that are patriots that are standing, and it's going to take this core to take this nation back. So patriots, with that said, one last little bit here, which is always important, is to make sure that you have your home defense plans in place. Keep your skills up. Keep them sharp. You never know who's going to come knocking at the door. Patriots, right now, many Americans are feeling powerless. The economy isn't stable, crime continues to plague our communities, and those in charge don't seem to even care. There's something empowering about knowing that you have the skills to defend yourself, and that's why I endorse iTarget Pro. This revolutionary system allows you to dry fire practice with your actual firearm anytime in the safety and privacy of your home. No more inconvenient trips to the range, and you still have a ton of practice ammo. 
Just download iTarget's proprietary app, load the laser bullet into your firearm, and start your training experience. Improve muscle memory, increase reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger control, and more. iTarget Pro comes in all the major calibers, including 223, so that you can stay sharp with almost any firearm. Save 10% plus get free shipping with the offer code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, when you go to iTargetPro.com right now. Again, 10% using your promo code BARDS, plus free shipping when you go to iTargetPro.com. Don't rely on the government to make you feel safe. Empower yourself with iTargetPro. That's the letter I, TargetPro.com, iTargetPro.com. Offer code is BARDS. I think one of the things that I hope everybody takes to heart, and I think you'll hear it in this interview as well, is there are great men and women in uniform and out, okay? We have a very difficult time right now sorting out kind of the good from the bad that's in the military. And there is definitely a core of really bad leadership in our military that has sold this nation out, straight out. What you're going to hear a lot of tonight is the perspective to understand that there's a big core of these people that are just weak. They just follow orders. They don't question them, and, they, and they're not paying attention to what's going on. What we're looking for in the, to lead this nation are the bold leaders, those that have stayed in, fought the system, and managed to continue so they work solidly within, and those that have held the line against tyranny as they are now fighting the system to bring forth truth and ultimately set themselves free. So former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller, he was, as I say, former battalion commander for 101st Airborne, such an amazing honor that he held, a legacy that he holds, and the greatest thing he's now known for is standing up for the oath. There's no higher honor or glory for this nation. Patriots, let me introduce to you to an American hero. Here we go. Well, Patriots, today I'm really honored to have former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller on, who was the battalion commander in his last station for the 101st Airborne. Now, to understand this, as before we get into this conversation, this is a man who's a West Point graduate. He was one of two battalion commanders that were relieved after the mandate was put in, in DOD, for his refusal to put that clot shot in his body and ultimately resigned on principle. This, this is a man of integrity. This is a man that, quite frankly, we just don't have enough officers like him, and it's a great honor to have him on today. So, Brad, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for everything that you're doing. And uh, I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with you in this fight. Boy, it is one, isn't it? And I'll tell you, this is insane. Let's start with some of your background and then kind of walk us through what happened. And then we kind of get a context to where we're going on this craziness. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I graduated from West Point in 2003. So I'm actually coming up on now what would be 20 years. Um, and then at about the 18-year mark of my career, I was selected to be a battalion commander. I was a battalion commander in the 101st Airborne, uh, which was exactly where I wanted to command. I got my my first choice for kind of, you know, when you put in a wish list for where you'd like to command, I got my first choice for the battalion that I wanted to command. So uh, everything was going well in my career, and I took command in the summer of 2021, so June to be exact. So if we just look at the timeline of what was going on then, the mandate would come out in August. So I took command of the battalion in June. And I mean, I very much understood exactly what I was walking into. And I very much understood that I was probably going to be on borrowed time. So then two months later, of course, the uh, 
the mandate goes into effect. Uh, it was no secret. I mean, I, I had I had informed my direct boss, which would be the brigade commander, and then also the division commander, which would be the the general of the entire 101st Airborne. I had been very upfront with both of them and had let them know that under no circumstances was I going to uh, to take the shot. I did not take the shot. I was relieved of command in October of 2021. And then a couple of months later, once I realized that uh, the Department of Defense was not going to walk this back, they were not going to you know, come to their senses, as it were. And so I just decided that, you know what? I don't think I can be a part of this organization any longer, regardless of how close I might be to retirement and the pension. Um, I don't think I want to be here any longer. And so I submitted my resignation. And in my letter of resignation to the Army, I said, um, I believe that this is this is malfeasance. This is misconduct that is being perpetrated against the service member. And I believe that my continued service would amount to an unspoken endorsement of what is going on. And I'm not going to do that. And I feel that my values do not align with the values of the senior leadership of DOD. So, you know, here's my resignation. And so when I left the Army in September of last year, um, I left with a, a little over 19 years of, of active service. So 19 years, three months and 15 days. Wow. I mean, that's and I mentioned it to you before the show. That's really just so underhanded as well, because literally I know you were forced into that position, but nonetheless, they just basically ripped you from your retirement as well from all of those years of service. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty crazy situation. I mean, so if you really look at what I and again, not that this is all about me. This is about, you know, in a much a much wider perspective of what's going on. But um, in my case, so I lost my command position because I was relieved. Right. I lost what would have been the remainder of my career. I mean, however much longer I, I would have would have continued. And then, uh, of course, I lost my retirement. So those are the three things that I had to give up. But um, at, at the end of the day, you, you we're talking about just, yeah, worldly prestige. We're talking about positions, which are important. And I would never diminish that. But at the end of the day, you know, my integrity, my my oath to the Constitution, I mean, those are things that are far more important. I agree with you. And I, I'm saying this complimentary, but also just in, re, in, in a reflection here. This position you've taken is not only rare, but unfortunately, it's almost scarce in this day and age when we're dealing with such a threat like this. Yeah, I would. And, and, and I'll tell you, it's also been unpopular. Um, I did not I did not win a lot of friends by taking the stance that I did with my peers who are still in the military. I, in fact, I think many of them just either think that I'm crazy or a zealot or, a, you know, like a wannabe martyr or or um, just entirely misguided, right? I mean, it, I'm sure it runs the spectrum depending on which of my specific friends we're talking about. But, um, but I will tell you, even as I say that though, I have won a lot fewer friends, but friends that are much more meaningful in this fight. Because I mean, the people over the last year, year and a half that I have met, people that are kind of on the same side of this as I am, or as you are, et cetera, I mean, these are these are tremendous, tremendous, tremendous people. Now we're we're on the minority, right? But I mean, just just incredible people that I've met, just incredibly courageous, uh, just moral stalwarts. Many of them just you know very strong Christians. So that has been incredible to see. Let's talk about this from a standpoint of warfare, and I've, I have a 
pretty good background in fifth generation warfare. This whole thing is right almost out of the textbook of unrestricted warfare, which was put out by the Chinese in the late 70s, where the institutions that you trust are used against you. What's your thought on this? How did this corruption and mindset get to where it was just a blind acceptance of something that we now know, even through DMED data, that this shot is literally causing huge harm to our service members? Yeah, so, and, and I think that's, um, you know, I do not subscribe to the thought that um that that is just incompetence or that the the shots were rushed no i think this was a sinister plan from the very beginning and one of the main reasons that i never took the shot personally was because i never really believed exactly what we were being told about um just the entire covid narrative and so back to your point more broadly about warfare is what the average american has got to understand is that War is much larger than just bombs, tanks, guns, explosions, etc. It's much, much, much broader than that. And there is a large, there's a large patchwork of activities that is done long before the first bombs or, or, um, or you know, or, or, or tanks begin to roll or whatever, right? There's a, there's a large patchwork of activities that has already occurred to soften targets or prepare battlefields or whatever. And that can happen tactically. It can happen strategically. And in some cases, you know, it can happen over a period of uh, of years. And so what I think we are seeing here is the deliberate weakening of our institutions. And it's happening in the military. But I mean, um, I mean, I know, you know, Pete Chambers, Pete Chambers has spoken about what's going on at the border. Well, I mean, I think that's just one more prong in the strategy. Uh, our our medical establishment has all but completely collapsed. I mean, people are losing losing faith in it. I think that's a prong in the strategy. You know, what's going to happen with the economy? Is that another prong in the strategy? So it's a, it's a very comprehensive strategy that is being done to weaken our institutions, weaken America as a nation, and then weaken Americans as a people. You are a battalion commander for the 101st. That legacy is massive. What they represented in World War II Everything from Normandy forward, the the heroics that were done by 101st. I want you to talk a little bit about that in what it was to become a battalion commander, but also what that legacy means to you. Yeah, so so it's actually very interesting to look back on because um, on the one hand, do I have kind of uh, you know sour memories towards the 101st? Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, I, I mean, clearly that was the that was my last duty station. That's where everything kind of fell apart, you know, for sure. But that's not necessarily the division's fault per se. I could have been anywhere at that time and the same thing would have happened. Um, I had always wanted to serve in the 101st and I, I never had previously to battalion command. And so when I was a major, so kind of a mid-grade major, and for those who are not necessarily familiar with the army, uh, you typically command, well, you, you command a battalion as a lieutenant colonel. And so when I was a mid-grade major, so still several years before I would have been eligible to command, um, I remember thinking that I might have a shot at battalion command. Just looking at my record, what I had accomplished, I remember thinking, you know, if I get the opportunity to command a battalion, I would like to command in the 101st Airborne Division because it, it just it has just a, a very illustrious history. It's, it's um, one of the more storied divisions in the army. Uh, 
it's known as the screaming Eagles, or maybe people have heard the, uh, the term, you know, rendezvous with destiny. Or if you watch a lot of world war II movies, you're undoubtedly going to see the screaming Eagle that represents the, uh, the 101st. So I was, I was very proud. In fact, I even told the division commander, I even told him uh, when we had a conversation, this was just before I was going to be relieved. Um, but he knew my position. He knew my position on the shots. And I and we had a, a, a one-on-one conversation in his office. And I told him, if this is how my career ends, then so be it. Because I am exactly where I wanted to be. I am, I am in the division that I wanted to be. I am in the brigade that I wanted to be in. And uh, I was in third brigade within the 101st. So the Rakasans, which is also just an extremely famous brigade. And I was commanding the exact battalion that I wanted to command. So, you know, I mean, I just told him, I said, I'm exactly where I wanted to be. I am commanding the battalion in the brigade and in the division that I want to be. And so if, if I got to throw my cards on the table and if, if this is how it all ends, then so be it. That's pretty amazing. I, I, I'm really impressed with this, the line of integrity that you're holding. And I think what's more disturbing to me is how few have gone that way. I'm trying to just dissect that a little bit from the officer's point of view. How did we get to be a place of compliance within our officer corps rather than the boldness and righteousness of standing on the moral foundation that our military is supposed to be on? Yeah, I mean, that that is the question. That is the question. How did we get to where we are now? And then, and I think about this all the time. And, um, you know, I, I created a Substack fairly recently and I, I've started writing a couple of pieces. And so a lot of this is just my own thoughts and I, I muse on this or that, but that is one of the questions that I constantly ask myself. You know, when I went through West Point, one of the most foundational lessons that they would teach all the cadets was through the honor code, right? And therefore it was imbued within you that you will have integrity. You know, you will have honor. You're not going to lie. Like you're not going to live a lie. Um, and then you get into the, the army and you learn the army values and that's supposed to be inculcated within you. And you are taught that, Hey, you know, leadership is not always going to be easy. These things are taught. And then we get into a, um, a crucial set of circumstances like our country is in right now. And we see, unfortunately, that even within our military, where we, we prize courage and integrity, and yet we see a lot of individuals that are uh, they're faltering when it comes to either one of those. I mean, it's just incredible to see. But however, I have to say that at the same time, though, um, at the same time, we see these cases. Now, they're very, very, very few in number, but we see these cases of these other individuals that are just exhibiting extreme courage. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the, uh, you know, the private out there or, you, you know, I mean, depending on your branch of service, but the individual out there who may be 19 or 20 years old and may only have a year or a little over a year of service was really good at their job. They really liked this. They thought this was what they were going to do for their career um, for them to stand up. And many of them did for them to stand up. I will tell you, they were probably staring at more adversity than I was. You know, I mean, um, that's just that's that's very hard for some of these young troopers that withstood immense pressure from their leadership and still stood strong. 
And I've met some of those individuals now just through everything that has happened over the last year, year and a half. Um, so in light of seeing the vast majority of our officers that, uh, that, that failed, and I'm just going to call it what it is, to see these other examples of extreme courage, in some cases, from some of our really young service members, that has actually been very encouraging. The rank of a lieutenant colonel, it's interesting what I've been witnessing. I talked to Pete Chambers about the same thing. It has literally been the lieutenant colonel band of leadership in this military that has really held the line on this. And I can list a number of others, many you don't know, or you may not know, but my point is some are even still in service that have held that solid line going, there's no way I'm taking this shot. What is it about that rank? I, I find this fascinating because the 06 is in the World War II model. If you want to take even like, I think there's a great scene in Saving Private Ryan where literally you have captain speaking to colonel and it's literally that bridge between the leadership and the, the, the battle captain. The lieutenant colonel rank now has suddenly emerged as this, I'm going to use the term battle captain, with enough visibility on the bigger picture and yet the focus on the troops and the preservation and protection of the, of the soldier. What is it about that rank? Yeah, so very interesting question, and one I've also asked myself too, because if you look, um, if, okay, so let, let's start at the top. So if you look at our general and our admiral ranks, basically virtually none of them have come out. Now, now you have some retired guys who have come out and been on the right side of this, but for those currently serving, virtually none. Um, then you come down to the 06 ranks, so colonels, or if we're talking about the Navy, you know, captains, extremely few there are some but i mean extremely few so come down one rank which would be your lieutenant colonels or again if we're talking about the navy it would be your commanders and uh there haven't been many of us but there have been some there has been just a very strong coterie of a couple of individuals you know we mentioned pete chambers earlier he's just one of them that um have been extremely strong kind of carrying the banner of freedom but uh, above that rank for whatever reason they are virtually unaccounted for now there are a few and i do know a few that there were um there were colonels and are are now out or in the process of getting out but they are very 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 few in number so let's speak about lieutenant colonel and kind of what that means in the army because in light of this discussion or in light of that question there are some interesting things that we can point to so as i was coming up through and i was being selected for battalion command the uh the chief of staff of the army actually put forth an initiative in which he wanted to change the way in which battalion commanders were selected. And so they created what they were kind of colloquially referring to as like, like an NFL combine, but for battalion commanders. And so you would go through this assessment course. It was called BCAP, the battalion commander assessment program. And um, every battalion commander or every, every prospective candidate had to go to um, Fort Knox, Kentucky and go through this assessment. Now, I was stationed in Korea at the time. So I had to travel from Korea to Fort Knox, Kentucky in order to go through this assessment. And the reason that this assessment was developed was because uh, the chief of staff of the army said, we got to do a much better job in selecting battalion commanders because battalion commanders are really where that, that rubber meets the road. They are, you're a, um, you know, you're a seasoned guy. Typically by the time you're commanding a battalion, you're at about the, the 18 year mark as an officer um you're but you're still kind of low enough that you typically still know your soldiers uh so and, and and i'll give people an example so my battalion 
my battalion was about 550 soldiers. And then I had another 150 or so that, um, that kind of belonged to me administratively, but that I really had like day-to-day command of about 550. So while I didn't necessarily know, and I was only in command for four months. So while I didn't necessarily know every single one of my soldiers in extreme detail, I knew my soldiers and they, and they knew me, you can still do that as a battalion commander. It's much harder as you go up. Um, and you're just in, in, in much larger commands. So when you take that, when you look at this, this level of command that the army says is super critical and they decide that they're going to revamp the way in which battalion commanders are chosen. It is interesting because it highlights how the army feels about battalion commanders. But then when you look at it within the context that you mention it, it's also just as interesting because it seems to be that above that rank, uh, these guys, and I mean, I hate to use the term sold out, but just for lack of a better term, it just seems that these guys, they're, they are, uh, they're too far gone. So either too institutionalized, too worried about their pensions, um, feel that they can't, they can't do anything. They can't speak out. I don't exactly know what it is, but a common refrain that I hear from some of these guys is that, well, I'm glad that you're doing it, but I can't do it. And, and, and I, I have no sympathy for comments like that. For someone who tells someone like me, I'm glad you're doing it and you're right. Cause I've, I've heard people tell me things like that, or I've heard of cases where people tell other people that are on our side, things like that. And I just kind of have no sympathy for those that say, I'm glad that you are doing what you're doing, but, uh, but I, I, I can't do that. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing moment that we're in, especially looking at the ranks that have been really active. You, you mentioned like the private, there's also the the spec for mafia that has been very active right now and revealing a lot of stuff what happened to our sergeant majors? I think this is the one of the things that has really stunned me. When I was in, in 2012, I was down at Fort uh, Bliss in El Paso. And that's where the sergeant major academy is. And I was stunned at that time that they were forcing the graduates to attend uh, gay pride events against their religious convictions. Or they, and they were telling them that if they didn't go through this as, a, as part of their graduation, that they would not graduate. That, that's unbelievable. This is where we are today. But what's your observation in the sergeant major class? Because that should be absolutely above all soldier health, above all things. That's really the sergeant major's tasking. Yeah. So if, if people are curious about um, what a sergeant major's responsibility is, I'll tell you, if, if, if people don't necessarily have a reference point of being in the military themselves, if you've read We Were Soldiers Once and Young or even seen the movie, you will see there kind of a, a great encapsulation of uh, the relationship at the battalion level between a battalion commander and a battalion command sergeant major. But you're right. So the command sergeant major is the senior enlisted leader within the entire organization. So if we're talking about a battalion, then he is, you know, command is largely a a uh, a role that is held in tandem and so let me explain that real quick so you're considered to be a command team so if we talk about my battalion command i was the commander but then my my right hand is the battalion command sergeant major and he's the senior enlisted um advisor or leader within that battalion and so together we are considered to be a command team and in in many respects we command jointly. Now, at the end of the day, 
the command sergeant major works for the commander. I mean, when it really comes down to it, there's only one commander. Um, so, so it's, it's a, it's a team, but even between the two of you, of course, there's the hierarchy, you know, there's only one commander, but you're right. This is another, another group of individuals that have a lot of clout and just amazing, amazing influence and are largely in this fight, you know, un, unaccounted for. Like you, you, you can't find them. Now, there are a couple of uh, notable exceptions, but they are few and far between. And I have, um, I mean, I've called out the, the command sergeant's major as well for being largely unaccounted for when we, we need them to muster right now. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just really kind of shaking my head because the checks and balances that were put in for a soldier integrity to the all the sense of creating a, a, a viable adaptive force they just broke apart. And so we see this fragmentation happening with, as you pointed out, it's it's really strange groups of people. We see the the, the most, even the pre-NCO class, whether it's spec four or whether it's gonna be down to your privates. And there's a not much that I've seen coming out of the, the NCO core, but I then we see this other band of Lieutenant Colonels, and, I, and I'm somewhat generalizing, but I'm just going by what I can pull as far as metrics. It's stunning to me because it's it's two groups you wouldn't expect to be so bold, and yet it's almost like that's the groups that indirectly understood the lessons of Melee and Cali. I mean, literally, I mean, that's what was told. You cannot follow illegal orders or you yourself will be held accountable. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we we know that. That, that knowledge is out there, and yet for whatever reason – it's just not landing. And let me take just a moment to explain this. Um, this, for whatever reason, I still feel like people are, um, what they're doing is they're, they are going along the path of least resistance. And so when individuals are faced with some sort of moral dilemma like this, one of their most common recourses is to just follow the path of least resistance. And a lot of times what that looks like is, well, I'm going to do what I'm told. There's safety in doing what I'm told, right? And then a lot of people, they fall back on, well, I'm expected to follow orders. And so, you know, let's talk about that just a moment. So are you expected to follow orders? Yes. Do you have to follow orders that you do not like? Yes. However, there's a huge caveat. You are not expected. And in fact, you are expected to disobey orders that are illegal, immoral, unethical, unconstitutional. Now, I understand that sometimes there's going to be some interpretation there as to what actually constitutes an illegal order, etc. I'm not saying that this is easy, but in the military, it is institutionally recognized that you are not an automaton. You're a thinking individual. We, we place a premium on having thinking individuals. You're expected to reason through, not so you can willfully disobey. Again, you, you cannot choose to disobey an order just because you disagree with it. Like if you disagree with a tactical order that you have, um, you have received, what's your recourse? You approach the individual who issued the authority and you explain your case. You know, maybe you have a conversation about it. And at the end of the day, if the order stands, then you execute it, even if you don't like it. That's, I mean, it is the military, right? You're expected to follow orders. But that's, we're talking about an order there that you may not necessarily agree with. But if it's a legal order, you still have to obey it. When we're talking about orders that are illegal and it's written into our um, our leadership manuals that if you have to research the relevant material regarding an order to figure out if it is legal or illegal, then you're expected to do that. You know, um, 
leadership in the military and even more so command. This is, I mean, this is not for the, for the faint of heart. You know, if you, if you can't do this, if you can't accept this responsibility, you know, you should, you should never be in command. So you're expected to do some homework. And so what we have right now is we have individuals that I think are just following the path of least resistance. They've, um, they feel like, well, my commanders, the lawyers, everyone is telling me that this is lawful when it is clearly not. And they've just chosen to, uh, to go along with that. There's an interesting thing that's coming out of this as we're discussing. I'm just kind of reflecting on this. And we had a, a, a unit at AWG, which was on adaptability. And it gets right to the core of this, of creating adaptive thinking, which we had identified as the dog squadron, which was concepts and integration. That was one of the areas that we were identifying in the main body force that was literally starting to slide, was creating that adaptive soldier on the ground. And I think some of this is reflective of that. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled as to why, because and I would love to get your thoughts on this. Basic training has struggled with the new soldier for a number of years now. The one who questions authority, doesn't obey immensely. They've had to change even the structure of basic training to embrace that new and adaptive type thinker, if you will, or one who questions authority as a soldier. And yet we are now at a point of obedience rather than thinking and being adaptive. What's your thoughts? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question, you know, for sure. So um, there's certainly got to be a, a balance there within the military, just speaking in general terms, you want subordinates who are obedient for sure. Um, and you will quickly make a name for yourself if you are the person who is always questioning orders. At the same time, though, um, no, no leader, um, at least no leader worth their salt, right, wants unquestioning subordinates. So when I was a battalion commander or when I've been in other leadership positions, um, I, I mean, I've always wanted to dialogue with my subordinates. Now, I do not want a subordinate who's going to willfully disobey something, um, but I do want subordinates to offer a different perspective or have a conversation with me and where it is permissible according to time to have the conversation before an order is given out in order to inform my position before I give an order, then great. Some, you're not always going to have that, that, uh, that, that time luxury. Um, but still, I, I think there has to be kind of a happy medium there between individuals who are obedient, individuals who want to follow the orders that come from their leaders um, and question when it's appropriate and question in a way that is still deferential to their leader. But again, when I make all these comments, I am talking about in the confines of legal orders. When we're talking about something that a subordinate believes is illegal, I think that subordinate, first and foremost, approach for clarification. You know, approach your superior, whatever authority issued the order, and just make sure that you understand the order correctly. So if you have it in writing, you know, take a copy of it and say, hey, is this maybe just not worded properly like this part of the order? Is there something that I'm misunderstanding? Is there some greater context that I'm not aware of? Etc. because this does not sit right with me. And one of two things is going to happen. The, uh, the commander or whomever issued the order may say, you know what? Um, you know what? You're, you're, you're right. Either that part is not very clearly written and we need to clean that up. Or you're right. You know what? You're making me rethink this. And maybe, maybe we need to reissue this order in a, in a different way. Or maybe we need to resend the order. 
or you're going to be told, um, no, thanks for your, you know, thanks for bringing it up, but, uh, you know, the order stands. And in that case, if the subordinate truly believes that it is illegal, then he's got to find another recourse. So maybe he goes to the next higher commander, or maybe he goes to the chaplain or wherever, but he is not expected to, to, uh, to obey, you know, orders that he thinks are clearly illegal. So it's, it, it's tricky though. I mean, it, it requires balance. It requires um, individuals who can operate amid very cloudy and, and complex situations. You know, I mean, being a, being a leader in the military, like I said before, is, is, is not for the faint of heart. And even more so if we're talking specifically about commanders. I agree. And I think this is also you're highlighting the challenges of being a good soldier today, which has become far more complex, especially in these asymmetric type worlds and fights that we're in. Let's talk about the oath. Because the oath never dies, frankly. I mean, you, I, I took it. You've taken it. Doesn't matter, in uniform or out of uniform. When, it's, when we come to a domestic threat, enemies domestic, that oath is still very much alive. And yet, the military uh, doesn't re even really consider. They say it, but they don't really consider enemies domestic in the terms of um, of this type of warfare. When in fact, we're what they think they're more positioned for is to looking for that land invasion versus the insurgency from within. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I, th I think that's the reality that um, Americans, you know, speaking about the general citizenry, have got to wake up to. And then even more specifically, this is the reality that individuals who are currently wearing the uniform also need to wake up to. So when we talk about the oath, let me just uh, personalize it really quick. So with my own situation, I really felt like I was being placed in a position where I had to choose between my oath and then this organization the department of defense that purports to follow the oath and those and so i i realize how paradoxical that sounds and it it was a paradox right because i i felt if i'm going to remain loyal to my oath which i take very very seriously i'm actually going to have to leave the military and again i realize at first glance some people may not necessarily understand that but you you have to realize that um if the military has become infiltrated, thoroughly corrupted, inverted, whatever we, we want to call it, then I felt like I was going to be in violation of my oath if I were to remain in the military. So I decided that, hey, hey, you know what? I'm actually being loyal to my oath and loyal to my country by separating myself from the military. Now, there are plenty of people who have decided to, you know, to continue to fight from within, et cetera. I'm just explaining how I saw it and the decision that I made. So for me, that oath is very, very, very serious. Another thing that we have to remember about the oath is we very deliberately, and this is by design, do not take an oath to an individual. And um, there are cases in history in which armies out there have taken oaths to individuals, you know, to their head of state or, or whomever. We don't do that. We take an oath to the Constitution. And so... In theory, if the government or the military or whatever starts to turn against the Constitution, then that means that those who are wearing the uniform could potentially, and I would say this is happening now, are being placed um, where they're in a situation where these are now in tension, where you have your oath and then the organization that you're a part of that says it's following the oath when it's clearly not. Now, this is... Uh, those two are in tension and individuals are going to find themselves being pulled in two different directions. And I, I recognize that that's a complex situation and that that is um, that there are no easy answers there. But that's 
that's exactly where we are. So let's talk about the domestic piece of this. So it is true that when you look at the oath, there is a there is a, a clause in the oath which mentions you know enemies, foreign and domestic, right? Um, so we all understand what foreign enemies means. I mean, that's kind of in general when we think of the military, we think of fighting some type of foreign enemy. So what does it mean? And this is a question we absolutely have to figure out right now. What does it mean when we have domestic enemies or when we have enemies from within that are corrupting our own institutions, that are violating their oath and that are actually, that have actually turned on the nation, which I think is, is, is what has happened. And I think we don't do ourselves any favors by trying to speak in mitigated language when we talk about it. I mean, I think we have individuals that if I'm, if I'm being honest, um, are guilty of treason that are deliberately seeking to weaken our institutions and, and weaken our country. And so for me, I am willing to resist that. And I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, there's not a call for violence, but what I'm saying is, is that I am willing to resist that. And I view that as being in alignment with the oath. I would agree with you. I think it's fantastic words. And I think this is one of the big challenges we face. I think there's, um, a concern, and I, I say I think it's more than a concern. People are becoming very uncertain how to approach or trust the military right now. I think that's indicative in the recruitment numbers, but I can also say just from the metrics, from the things I get pretty regularly, as they've seen the military step in and force the shot upon their soldiers, those that are on the outside that are fairly awake and staying no to this are now questioning how can we trust our military especially if we deal with something domestic. What's your thoughts there? Yeah, so two things first come to mind. Um, this this whole thing with the shots, right, has just been an incredible litmus test because at the end of the day, and I'm sure you, you feel the same as me on this, this is not just about the medical aspect of that. There's a freedom aspect. There is a, you know, is it even more sinister than that? Is, there, is it some sort of, uh, you know, destructive strategy towards the country as a whole? Because I kind of think all of those things. So it's not, it is a question of medical freedom for sure, but it's not just that. And it's just been a, a fascinating litmus test in terms of being able to see where individuals fall um, with regard to just the, uh, the shot itself, right? Th the second thing is with trust towards the military, right? Um, we are seeing this huge generational rift right now. So typically speaking, it was very common that you would have individuals that either go to the service academies, you know, like West Point, the Air Force Academy, wherever, or that enlist in the military or, or ROTC, et cetera, um, that have a parent, grandparent, et cetera, that also served. And in some cases, you have a whole multi-generational line of, uh, of those who have served, right? And so in a large way, military service has been generational. And so what we're seeing now is that there is a huge rift there because you have individuals that are, you know, maybe approximately my age where they are, they are coming to the end of their military career and maybe their time in service ended like mine did, or maybe they were able to retire, or maybe, maybe they got out just before all of this happened. But let's say they have teenage children or children that are kind of at that age where they might enter the military. And a lot of these parents, not only are they not encouraging their son or daughter to serve, but they are actively discouraging them from looking at the military as an option for what to do next. 
And that is, um, that is incredible. And here's what people need to realize. We're already talking about recruitment issues. We're already talking about retention issues because so many people want out. But I would say that the, the true magnitude of the problem has not manifested itself yet because you have, let's say you have 17 year olds right now that come from military families that under other sets of circumstances would enlist in the next year or two. And now we're not going to, but we're not quite seeing that yet, but we will see it in a year or two or three or four, whenever these, these teenagers that otherwise would enlist don't, here's the other thing that we're not seeing. We're not seeing the, um, think about the, uh, the Sergeant or, you know, like in the Navy, you know, the, the petty officer that is at 10, you know, maybe 12, you know, kind of 13, 14 years of service where they're, they're over that 10 year hump. And in under normal circumstances, this person would, of course, just ride out to 20 years. But many of these individuals are so fed up, they're just looking for an opportune moment to go ahead and leave. But they may have not, they may have not um, told their commanders that yet, they're just waiting for the opportune moment, which means that that signal has not risen yet that, oh, hey, we're getting ready to lose some of these individuals that we that are experienced, they've got over 10 years, but we're about to lose them six, seven, eight years earlier than we uh, we would have if they had decided to stick around to 20, which they would have if all of this had not, you know, happened in the last couple of years. So some of these signals have not even risen to the fore yet. We're not even aware of them, but we're going to be aware of them in the next, you know, couple of years. And that's on top of the signals that are already presenting themselves, the retention and the recruitment problems that we are already seeing. What I'm saying is the problem is much larger, and we're going to see that in the next couple of years. We're really back in a revolutionary war period, and we're starting to see this, I think, in many ways. And it goes to your comment. You said in order to serve your oath, you had to resign from the military. I agree with that. I mean, this is the challenge. You've also laid out here how we're starting to see or, or we're going to soon see the effects of this attrition, which will be really it's disguising itself with the numbers until people suddenly drop paperwork and say, I'm out and I don't need my retirement. I'm just out because it's of the moral conflicts. That positions us as a nation in a very unique way because the standing military then becomes a control agent basically of a federal government that has become increasingly hostile to the people, which is right out of the Declaration of Independence, which is literally despotism. And we are sitting with a body of people, leadership included, that has said, in order to serve my oath, I need to step away. What's your thoughts on that position? Yeah. So what I would say, so, so two things. So one is, I think that that is happening and that is probably going to happen in greater numbers. You know, we've already spoken about that. Um, individuals are going to step away and individuals are going to feel like they are doing the right thing. And that the, um, you know, these are individuals who are patriots, right? So, so again, it goes back to this, this paradox that I mentioned before, where it may seem strange that, oh, I'm leaving the military, but I'm actually doing that because I love my country or because I feel that, you know, the call to freedom, you know, kind of requires me to do that. Um, so that's one part of it. The other is you have now this, um, and, I, and I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying here, but, but we, we, need to, we need to be clear about it. You have these individuals who do have military experience who are very untrusting of the government 
they're now out of uniform, but they're coming out of uniform with all of the, um, the experience of what military service means, you know, they know how to organize, et cetera. And again, this is not a, a call to violence in, in any way, but what it does mean is there are people out there that are not going to allow their rights to be trampled on and have the, um, the moral and even the godly courage to to stand up and also have the um the know-how to do that if i'm you know if i'm making myself clear and 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 again i'm not saying that that's this is this is not what i want it's not what anybody wants but what i what i'm saying is is that we are we're we're kind of approaching a uh, a fever pitch in our in our country and people just need to recognize um how tense the moment is oh i agree with you and i i i'm probably for a lot of reasons, I'm pretending to be more vocal on that specific point, but I think you're on point here, and it is a, a critical moment that really where we're having to choose whom we serve, and our Constitution is is something that is those that have given the oath to it, those that believe in it and walk in it, it it's right there with as one of the sacred documents, and we're seeing it trampled upon trampled upon regularly, and we're watching the institutions that we should trust turning away from it and willfully giving in. I've worked with enough officers over the time at that 06 and above level that have taken on and embraced the idea of, you know, a unified world, a, a greater global one world order. Some of that's coming right out of their, in, their training slash indoctrination in the CFR when they do their officer fellowships or whatever, that sort of thing. Um, some of them, it comes out of whether they work, they get their fellowships at Stanford, Harvard. A lot of this thinking is being put into our senior leadership. And so we're really faced with a real challenge. And I, I would say that in this moment, one of the things that is to the greatest advantage of the people is that what you just hit on is when you step away from the uniform and you put your feet squarely on the Constitution and our faith in this nation, we create in a very adaptive uh, force, loosely put, that has many, many ways of seeing the problem that a very indoctrinated military isn't going to do well with. We, un unfortunately, we have a lot of timid individuals that are in the military, and I, I know a lot of these individuals, and they're, uh, you know, they're my peers, and 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 they're my friends. And I mean, you know, they're still my friends. Um, now they are completely wrong on this, and um, one of the things that I I mentioned that I had a Substack recently. And uh, one of the pieces that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, which I think you mentioned on a show previously, but it was called An Appeal to Those Who Went Along. And what this was, was really just a call to courage for, in a large way, like people who are friends of mine to, hey, look at where you are. Look at what you have said your entire career that you stand for and, and, and probably have legitimately stood for. But look where you are now. Are, you, are your actions in alignment? with what you truly believe. And if they're not, then stop just going along to get along and do the right thing. It's not too late to still exert some courage. And um, another thing that I'll say on that is, and I know you speak a lot about this, so I know you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but this is a, you know, when we talk about war, we're in a war that is, that is spiritual first and foremost, and uh, it manifests itself physically for sure, for sure. Or, or through information as we've spoken about, but um, it is a spiritual war. You know, we're told that that uh, Satan is the prince of this world. And 
I will say that he has a lot of power and a lot of influence. And I wish that individuals, I don't like to focus on evil, but I wish that individuals would look around them at what's going on in the world and just realize how disgusting, how uh, just morally decadent and how evil it really is. And if, if though we be few in number, if we don't stand up and fight against this, it's only going to get worse. I fully agree. I think this is where um, we're really at a, a crucible moment in this nation. And, and you, you alluded to it earlier about the shot. It's really a threshing floor moment where we really start to see where the true loyalties and proper balance of, of, of authorities and beliefs line up. So we have those that have stood against this that are finding, and I and this is what I think is, becomes very powerful, they're finding their first and foremost loyalty to Father God and in their love in Christ, then comes constitution and family, and in, and somewhat in that order. And this is a that group of people is stalwart in where they're standing now. It's like they are not budging. There's nothing that they can be that can persuade them to move, and they make for a viable and dominant force in the battlefield, in my opinion. Though this is a very different type of war than most people in uniform have been trained to see. And I think that alludes to your spiritual warfare principle, but also the fifth generation dimension of this. Do you see that as part of the the timidness for some of this, of this leadership? 100%. Yes, yes, I do. So it's incredible to me because, um, you know, these last couple of years that I spent in my career, so I worked, you know, I was a, as a major, I was a battalion operations officer. I was a I was a brigade executive officer, you know, later I was a battalion commander. And then even after I got relieved, I worked on the, in the plan section for the division. So, you know, I would meet these individuals who, when it comes to their ability to either plan tactical operations or execute those operations, I mean, these guys are just magnificently intelligent, just their, their seemingly uncanny ability to just understand the complexities of maneuvering large organizations um, you know, against a thinking, feeling enemy, understanding the architecture communications that it takes to be able to command and control that. I mean, just um, understanding your your intelligence collection enterprise and how to, you know, integrate the movement of your troops with the movement of your artillery pieces, etc. And just an, an absolute, um, like these these extremely smart individuals who are uh, highly skilled cerebral thinkers when it comes to their ability to manage these uh, these complex operations, right? And 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 I'm I, I am singing their praises like that is a that is a thing of beauty for for people who can do that. But when you have individuals like that who have no moral foundation, then two things come to mind. One, um, hey, I am impressed by your tactical ability, and that is great, but. Um, if you can't fight for what is good, or if you can't be trusted to do what is right, I don't care about your tactical abilities or, 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 or what else you bring to the table. But secondly, it also means you're ill-equipped for this, uh, this war that we're in now, where only a portion of it may be executed in what we would typically call, you know, tactics. I mean, there, there, there are other modalities of this war that are far more spiritual in nature in which you may be entirely lacking. That's really well said. What's your assessment of the moral 
the the moral strength and the esprit de corps across the ranks right now with all that's gone on. I, I can't imagine internally that the focus on woke is going over well, that the consequences of even those that took the shot is as more and more information surfaces is going well. We had approximately very rough numbers, um, 25% of a, of a kind of an insurgent anti-constitutional class of leadership in our, in our military. We have a core group of 25% loosely that has stood steadfast into the shot is wrong and we need to preserve what our military is about. We have a 50% center that's probably trying to wait for this thing to blow over or just not get committed. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that 50% is now starting to move towards the we need to stand with the Constitution more increasingly. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I would agree with you. So let's, uh, let's talk about it in terms of what moral injury is. So moral injury, if we define it, it is exactly what it sounds like. So it's, a, um, it's one of these invisible injuries that can be kind of hard to diagnose. I mean, remember the struggles that we used to have a generation ago with PTSD and, and kind of getting that recognized and how you identify it, et cetera. So moral injury is the type of trauma that a, a person suffers when they commit an act that is in violation of their own moral code, or they are part of an organization and the organization departs from what the organization's stated moral code is, or this individual, you know, witnesses these things that go against their moral code. Um, now, on a very, very like, like individual level, anytime you do something that uh, you know is wrong, you're kind of morally injuring yourself to some degree, just to kind of use that analogy. So, Let's look at what has happened in our military over the last couple of years. So I would say you have a significant portion of your military population that is morally injured. And some of them are both victims and perpetrators of this moral injury. And I'll give you an example of that. If you take these mid-level commanders, maybe peers of mine, guys who are battalion commanders, who were themselves coerced to go along with this and put out orders that they may or may not have agreed with, um, maybe they didn't even necessarily want to take the shot, but they did because they were a commander. They knew it was expected of them. They kind of wanted to be on the team. And then in turn, they put that, that order out um, to their subordinates, et cetera. So they have been coerced. They kind of did something they didn't want to do, but then they passed that order down to others who then had to do something they didn't want to do. An individual uh, like that would be both, a, both a, a victim and a perpetrator of moral injury, but the moral injury doesn't end there. So Think about individuals in the military that have had their careers ruined or were forced to take the shot. Maybe they didn't take it and they got kicked out or they got marginalized or ostracized, or maybe they gave in and they did take the shots. But think about the spouses of those service members. Think about the children of those service members who saw how their parents were treated. Those family members are also victims of moral injury. So what I think is going on right now is you have what I would call a this is a strategic problem. This is a strategic problem that is invisible, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there. So what are what are some of the ways in which moral injury um, manifests itself? Well, first and foremost, you know, guilt that a person can have um, towards themselves or shame or even disgust towards themselves or resentment toward their leaders, towards the organization. Uh, this is not an effective fighting force. And I maintain that you have individuals right now who are uncomfortable with what they see when they uh, when they put on the uniform or they feel conflicted when they put on the uniform and they see 
their uh you know their name tape on that uniform or they see that american flag on their uniform and they're starting to question what it is that they've become a part of so i think the good news is some of these individuals that realize they may or may not understand the term moral injury but they will intuitively kind of understand what's going on there um i think some of them are going to start to come to our side you know the uh the truth side i i think that it's kind of a double-edged sword because I do think that we have to realize the gravity of the situation, like things are not good. And they're even kind of in some ways trending towards worse, but I'm an optimistic person. I think God wins in the end. I still think there are plenty of reasons for us to be hopeful. We do not need a majority to win this. We're not looking for the 50% plus one. We're looking for the small minority that is extremely active, that is extremely engaged, that is extremely courageous, that puts their faith in God and, uh, you know, and moves forward. I so agree with you on that last. I think that's just it. I think we get overwhelmed with the uh, imagery and the intentional programming of trying to make people think it's impossible to overcome. And we forget, you know, as God works with Gideon, 300 take down basically a legion, essentially. Yeah, it's a great example. Yes, yes. And I do think we're coming to that moment. And I guess, you know, kind of as a final question on this, as we start to close things out, um, when you're looking across America now as a person who had been, and not too long ago, in uniform, working from the optic of out, inside looking out, and now you're outside looking in, but you're getting the landscape of the people. What's your heart telling you? What, what's that telling you about America? Are you feeling stronger about your oath and your, in your position? Or do you feel that, that we have a, a greater moral conflict than we've ever imagined? What's your thoughts? Yeah, almost almost kind of both uh, simultaneously. So, uh, and it goes back to what I just said before, where I, I think things are very bad. Um, I, I don't want us to underestimate the gravity of the situation, but I think there's plenty of reason to be hopeful. And I think being engaged in, uh, in, the, in the good fight is completely worthwhile. There's no reason to have a defeatist attitude. The other thing that I would say is um, me personally, I feel that I can do much more good out of uniform than in uniform. If I were in uniform right now, I, I, it, it, would, it would just be extremely hard. I would be one of these individuals who would have trouble putting the uniform on each day. And I and I, I can only speak about myself. I would feel that I had sold out for, you know, to, to keep my command position or my career or my retirement or whatever. I mean, I wouldn't really be able to speak out like I'm doing now. So I personally am completely at peace with, uh, with where I'm at. I'm completely at peace. I'm very proud of myself. I mean, whatever else I might've accomplished in my military career, and I had a pretty good military career, but, uh, but the defining moment of my military career was refusing the shot and deciding to be loyal to, uh, to, uh, to my oath rather than just going along like everybody else did. So at the end of the day, uh, that is what my entire military career has been reduced down to was, you know, 19 years and four more years at West Point has been reduced down to that one moment. And I'm OK with that because um, I've never said I'm a perfect officer. I've never said that I, uh, you know, never committed faults or that I don't succumb to the same human frailties as everyone else. But I'm very proud to have done what I did and to be on on this side. I'll tell you, I what you just spoke there are just powerful words, and I hope. Those out here, whether you're in uniform or a veteran and you're sitting on the fence, you hear that. Because that is ultimately, Brad, what you just said is what we live for. 
We don't, we don't live for the moments of being written up like a G.I. Joe. We live for the moments of being the character of person that can literally put the values in the right place. And it doesn't matter whether the, the attacking agent is a shot or whether it's a, a raid on your camp. The end of the day, it's what do we stand for? And that defines the man, defines the nation, defines our legacies. And what, a, what an amazing statement. I, I congratulate you on this. I really do. And I can tell you're a man of humility. It probably does not go over easily, but you need to hear it nonetheless. So, Brad, tell us where you can, where we can find your Substack. That's important. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate that, Scott. So, um, so you can find it just my name. So, bradmiller10.substack.com. Okay, that's and you did have a great piece which I did reference in a previous show, and it was that piece of just the call to action for those. Brad, we always close with a prayer, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to do a prayer. Please. Father God, I just want to thank you for bringing forward former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller. Um, he's really established a moral line for people to hear, to resonate with, and to hopefully stir their hearts. A man who's put aside all of his commitment to nation for the proper ways of putting God and country before all things else, and I'm based on the Constitution, which is such a blessed document in this nation. So, Father, we just pray that his words will continue to be heard. People will resonate with what he says from this show to, to whatever in the, his substack and his writing, his continued engagement, that he will inspire, as he has in the past, continue to inspire a new army, an army under the banner of Christ, an army that is in love of this nation and standing firmly with you, Father, an army that's not paying attention to or being influenced by this this despotism that has seized hold of the leadership in this nation, but rather an army that is trying to restore this nation to one nation under God. And so we thank you for Brad, and we ask for blessings and prayers for he and his family and all that are around him and the continued resources that he needs to continue. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great interview, man. I just really enjoyed it, and it's um, it's very refreshing in, in, in so many levels. I congratulate you on this the, the line that you've walked here. Um, I have some, I have a personal. I won't get into it now, but I have a, there's a lot of personal aspects of that for me that are this resonates so well. I, I really hope that those who are in that place of the bubble of trying to decide which side of the fence to get on. I hope they hear your words and understand what you're saying because everything you've said here is so absolutely true in this time of the decisions we have to make and what our true service to this nation means. Wonderful. This is incredible. Hey, thanks, Scott. This was great. Well, I really appreciate it and look forward to having more conversations with you, which I know we will have. Wish you a very blessed day and we'll talk very soon. Hey, thank you. All right, God. God bless. Well, Patriots, that was former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller from what was the battalion commander position for the 101st Rockassins. I mean, it's, I, I to tell you, I, I really mean that. I say that very amazed because it's such that legacy of and his career path is one that most people wouldn't be able to step away from, and yet he did it for all the right reasons. What you've heard today is an amazing testimony of what should define every officer in our military. And we have some that are still there. I'm, and I'm not, but I'm just saying that this is, for those that compromise their values, you are being, you have 
you have a legacy of your own to live into, and it's not a good one. For those that have held the line and done the right thing and put the value of the Constitution and who service goes to first, I salute you all. This is a wonderful way to start Memorial Day weekend. This is the sort of commitment to nation and commitment to oath that built this nation. So I commend Brad. I commend others, too. And I, I am going to just speak to one tonight who was in our chat. It's, it's Hobby. You know who he is. This is another one who has done this fight, and both in the Army and both holding the line. So God bless you both. But Patriots, this is the type of leadership that is there that our nation was built on. So take this interview with a great deal of hope. There are great men and women out here that are fighting, and you're going to hear a lot more from them as we go forward. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us, and he'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs, and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who moved forward and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
old evil that has waited thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words, in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath.